Jesse, how's it going? I'm at a crossroads, Katie. Uh-oh, what's that about? I mentioned this on Twitter, but but next month I'm moving to a new apartment. I'm excited about that, but the situation's sort of complicated. What do you mean? Katie, what's my favorite food? Pizza. It's the only thing that you eat. Pizza, pizza, pizza. The only thing I eat is pizza. Uh, this apartment is closer than I have ever been in my life to a pizza place. It's like less than a block away. But, but, but. It's just not good pizza. Oh, God. Are you going to break your lease? I don't know what to do. I could break my lease. I could go on some sort of violent rampage. But when I mentioned this on Twitter and I said that the only time I would go to this pizza place is if I was drunk or desperate or both, several people helpfully said I should just spend my time in that apartment drunk and desperate. So I think 2021 on, I'm just going to be drunk and desperate all the time so that I can eat this pizza, which makes sense. Is there is that going to be really a huge change for you? <laughs> No, not that. Well, what am I? I'm not usually drunk and desperate. I'm usually sober. And, One or the other. And drunk path- or desperate. Pathetic. Yeah. So yes, 2021 will be an interesting and desperate and drunken year. Uh, speaking of just chaos, we've got some, some corrections to get to. But first, what podcast is this? This is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. I'm Jesse Single. As longtime listeners know, we never, ever, ever make any mistakes of any sort. This is correct, right? Yeah, it's never happened before. I imagine it could happen at one time, but so far it's never happened. Katie, I've got some bad news. Uh-oh. Uh, okay, so last last week we had an episode where we had a guest we both like and respect a great deal, a guy named John Stokes. He walked us through a situation involving Google and artificial intelligence and a researcher there named Timnit Gebru who got fired or who resigned, depending on who you ask. And um, as people wrote in to point out, John got some stuff wrong. I want to be clear. Everything I'm about to say, this is our responsibility. We are the hosts of the podcast. We produce it. So whenever there's an error, no matter who sort of uh, utters it, it's our fault. It's your fault. It's my fault in particular because I just yeah. – uh, what we really need is a fictional producer. We could call him like producer, producer Sal. And whenever Hesse. anything goes wrong, <laughs> our Latino, but he's Latino. So it's <laughs> he's, hard to make he's, fun of. he's Latinx. They are Latinx. Our non-binary Latinx producer Hesse. Okay. So yeah, in the, in the future, any errors are, uh, producer Hesse. This one is our fault. And I, I just want to quickly run down what the errors were because I'm going to delete all this stuff from the Patreon. And free versions of the episodes, just so we're not sort of spreading misinformation. Uh, I'll go through this quickly. John originally said Timnit Gaber's background was in sociology with some computer science training and that she went to MIT. No, her background is in computer science. Uh, she And she got her PhD in, uh, from Stanford uh, and her all her other degrees from Stanford. Uh, hey, guys, it's me, Jesse, breaking in to the episode. Uh, this is incredibly embarrassing, but Tim that Gaber's PhD is in electrical engineering, not computer science. Yes, I managed to introduce a new error in the course of making a correction. Yes, I'm very embarrassed about this. It has been a long week and I apologize. But just to be 100% clear, Tim that Gaber's PhD is in electrical engineering. I don't know what I did, but let's all forget this ever happened. Back to the show. Some of her work has brushed up against sociology, uh, but she's not a sociologist by training. John also said that Tim that Gabriel had been at Google since, quote, I think 2016, um, but she actually only started last year. Uh, hey, guys, it's me again. <laughs> Jesse again. I think I'm in hell. I think I'm in journalism hell. Uh, the New York Times and Columbia Journalism Review reported that Tim that Gabriel started last year, meaning 2019. I got that from their coverage. A Googler reached out to me and pointed out that Tim McGabriel actually started in 2018, which I was able to confirm. This doesn't change any of what follows, but again, I managed to introduce an error in the course of correcting an error. Tim McGabriel started in 2018, not 2019. Back to the show. I need a drink. This matters because John laid out a storyline where uh, Jeff Dean, a higher up at Google, had promised Tim that Gabriel and, and some of her sort of allies um, that they'd be able to do this sort of ethical AI work. Uh, and then in this storyline, Google has its uh, much covered, quote unquote, pivot to AI in 2016. And then suddenly their work becomes a liability. This is the version John laid out. But that storyline just doesn't work because by the time Tim that Gabriel came on, Google had already was already well past its pivot to AI. So. These errors were like 
probably 90 seconds of an hour long or so episode but they are they are consequential they're things that we got wrong and i just i want to be transparent about them yeah i mean you know we tend to make a big deal about other journalist errors and so we should also be willing to make a big deal out of our errors or your errors as the case may be Hesse's Hesse's errors Hesse's but look he's he's a migrant producer he's been through a lot what (laughs) so all right we apologize for this we should have done better fact checking on this episode um we are going to be beating hesse senseless the bottoms of his feet will be raw (laughs) um so this uh what will we're gonna have errors on this show and anytime we make errors we are going to um try to be as upfront about it as possible joking aside what annoys me about this is john is a very smart and good guy and the episode was generally well received um including by some people who said they they worked for google though i didn't like uh, check them these were emails and it's annoying because now as listeners it, it might cause you to question you know his other analysis but the whole point of transparency is that is your right it is your right to know you know what errors journalists made and and to to adjust your views of them accordingly i would argue john is still a very good voice on this stuff uh you know when you go on a podcast it's hard to remember dates in the moment but um yeah these errors did matter and i'll I'll be clear in the show notes for that episode exactly what happened uh anything else on this yeah so i got an interesting message from a guy at google um he didn't notice any of the errors, thank God. Um, but he uh, did give me some a little bit of feedback about the show. And what was interesting about what he said was that he agreed with John, found his analysis correct. And he was sort of disturbed by this because, as we mentioned in the show, John is a prepper. He runs a, a website for preparedness. It's called thepreparedness.com or thepreparedness.com. The prepared. The, Fact check. Yes. <laughs> error. Another fucking error. Hesse, get on it. Um, so, and he's, and he's Christian. He has a, a degree in divinity and he's a, I think he's a practicing Christian and like the kind of, reli- he's not like a secular Jew religious where like they don't actually believe in God. Um, he's <laughs> like a really, an actual religious guy. And he's such a random uh, swipe <laughs> at secular Jew. He's not one of those like heathens who's going to hell. Like he's morally legit. And so and the interesting thing was that my source at Google was sort of um he didn't really know what to do with this. He found himself agreeing with somebody who he feels politically he should not be aligned with. And I found that really interesting and I told him like you need to get over that. I got I've gotten over that. Um because part of like what we want to do on the show and I think part of what as a as a bigger project many of us in the world should be should be trying to do with our lives is to is to stop giving a shit about labels like prepper or christian or conservative or or liberal or whatever and judge people based on their arguments and their and their merits and i do i do think that gets exacerbated by media progressive media outlets like increasingly just slotting these into straightforward types like you know there's the the less nuance there is, the more people are incentivized to see things along tribal lines, which I don't think is a, a good uh, good idea. But um, yeah, that was an interesting episode. We got some good feedback on it. Thank you to those who wrote in. And, and sorry about the mistakes. But um, yeah, I think we've we've clearly explained what went wrong. And um, yeah. yeah. Okay, the one other piece of housekeeping is uh, for our patrons, this is our premium subscriber program, patreon.com slash blotch and reported. You get... Uh, at least three extra episodes a week for just $5 a month and up. We do some sort of fun perks. One of them we did was a electoral vote contest. And uh, I finally got a lot. We finally got around to figuring out who the winners were and sending them, uh, sending the winner $50. Congratulations. We had three people who successfully guessed the uh, electoral vote breakdown. So we had to go to the tiebreaker, which was the, popular vote congratulations to brian from massachusetts of course it would be someone from massachusetts it is the best and smartest state typical typical uh he wins 50 american dollars which we have already sent to him uh steven l was a runner-up and there was a third runner-up who who didn't respond when i asked if they want a shout out on the show but uh congratulations to all those people Okay, any other housekeeping or should we get into our content? Let's get into the content. Actually, let's let's mention um, what we're going to be talking about on the Patreon later today. Yeah, we're going to be talking about a uh, – this is sort of an offshoot of the John Stokes uh, ethical AI episode. A uh, AI researcher at NVIDIA, sort of a major tech company that posted a public enemies list of basically – 
anyone who disagreed with her online and she's a very big deal in the field so this was like a strange event i think we're gonna talk about that and then do a couple uh what we call wheel of topics where we let readers select what we talk about for like eight minutes, but that should be a good episode. Yeah. So if you are not already a member of our Patreon, you can uh, join us at patreon.com slash blocked and reported. Okay. So the back half of this show, we're going to talk about a really big court ruling in England. I'm already terrified that I'm going to fuck up between UK and England and Britain and jolly old Britain. They just have too many names. I apologize in advance. I'm going to mess something up, but a British court ruling about puberty blockers for kids. That's a media discussion. We're going to give the whole back half of the show to that. First, I, I got an email from a listener that I really wanted to dig into a little bit because it, it gets to something that I've, um, I think I've gotten in trouble with for a couple times and I, I genuinely want your feedback on Katie. I, I don't usually value your feedback or, or your, yeah, what is this? I know. Just, just this once I could use your feedback. Um, Okay, so when we talked about the young adult fiction blow up, and if you just look back in our feed, you'll you'll see an episode with young adult in the title. I'm not going to rehash the whole thing. Now, I pointed out that some people in the young adult fiction community, they act online as though they have sort of like basically untreated mental health issues. And I mentioned BPD, borderline personality disorder, and I got this email from someone who says they have been struggling with BPD forever. I'm I'm reading sort of piecing together different parts of the email. In the latest episode, you mentioned people with BPD saying people, I guess this is a quote of what I said, people with like borderline personality disorder, people who are just like very erratic and strange and lash out and are impossible to build trusting relationships with. As someone who has been living with this mental illness since I was a young child due to my mother's neglect and abuse, she also passed on to me her BPD genetically. Things like that really hurt. In the case of this email, I feel like even contacting you to explain why calling all BPD strange, erratic, and impossible to build trust relationships with will be seen as just another BPD thing. I don't, I don't view it that way for what it's worth. I mean, I appreciate the email. Um, I like listening to Barb because it makes me laugh. I think you and Katie bring so much value to the world by dissecting what is happening on social media, but sometimes you forget that generalizing is not part of a joke. It can actually be hurtful and continue spreading the stigma that all of us who suffer from BPD are just bad people. Um, I'll sort of leave it at that, but I, so my view of this is like, I I think Twitter and particularly like Twitter obsessiveness clearly harms people's mental health. And it's so hard to get good data on this because just there are basic social scientific obstacles to doing so. Like if you notice that people on Twitter have worse mental health, that might be because Twitter attracts people with worse mental health. Um, I've often made this connection just because it seems so obvious to me that like Twitter in certain ways incentivizes the kind of behavior where if you act that way around real life friends or family, people might eventually tell you like you should figure out why you act like this and why you have such a toxic effect on people. Like that is something you would say to someone you care about. On Twitter, acting in a vicious and toxic way can actually bring you acclaim and followers. So – I mean, I guess my first question for you, Katie, is like, do you, do you think it's fair to bring up potential mental health issues when someone is is acting like this online, or sh- should that just be out of bounds? Well, I mean, that's a tough question because, in some ways, attributing bad behavior to a perceived mental illness is, I think, a um, can be a good faith effort to not be like, oh, this person is just an asshole. You know, it's sort of in some ways, it's almost kind um, to say yeah. like, there's this like outside force that could be potentially turning this person into, you know, a, a like toddler online, rather than that's just who this person is. Um, so I kind of, uh, I don't know. Like the other thing is that we aren't psychologists or psychiatrists and have absolutely no place like diagnosing people um and in fact probably shouldn't do it so i mean i would be fine with instead of like saying that someone might have mental illness just saying someone's an asshole i don't have a problem with that um but i do think i do think you're right that there is a lot of undiagnosed mental illness that surfaces online or is rewarded online and that's something worth talking to or worth talking about um i don't know i'm sort of you know I feel bad that this person was hurt by our words or your words. It's definitely your fault. Hesse. Hesse made me say Hesse. that. Hesse. Hesse did it. Yeah. I mean, I guess one thing is like I, I definitely – I should not have like hypothesized that specific – some specific mental illness was driving the behavior. 
of people on why Twitter, but I definitely didn't mean to imply that like people with that are, are bad or, or suspect. Like you said, it's almost the other way. You're like positing a reason why people can, can act in what appears. You're making excuses. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't like sort of excuse discourse and you actually see people say this from the other direction. Like, Oh, if you say it's mental illness, like with mass shooters, like, Oh, you're saying it's mental illness. So that's just an excuse. It's like, well, I mean, I, right. I don't, I don't think so because like I, I've had um, some people very close to me with severe mental health issues, and it is absolutely 100% the case that it affects their ability to interact with me and others, and it makes them sometimes right. harder to talk to or interact with. Like, that's just the the brutal reality of how shitty mental illness is, and I just think Twitter is, like, is built to exacerbate – it's built to drive humans crazy because all these sort of, like, ancient – small group parts of us like what other people think of us and how we come across in public you know you you see the wrong thing and suddenly a million people are either applauding you or denigrating you that that's designed to drive us crazy and i think if you already have a brain that isn't a hundred percent up to snuff and mine definitely isn't and i can feel it getting worse when i'm on twitter too much it's just obvious what effect all this bullshit can have on you. How long has BPD been? Uh, is this like a new diagnosis or is this something that has been in the in the, the lexicon for a long time? I think it's very old. Let me just double check because uh, now now we're doing accuracy on the show as of this week. Yes. Uh, Live fact checking. <laughs> yeah. First introduced in the United States in 1938. Uh, yeah. So it's been around a while. I think that is one of those ones where it's like if people don't have some other explanation for someone's bad behavior, they're just like, oh, they're bored. Like people throw that around a lot. So I, I probably shouldn't have. Also, there are people I've met who are complete fucking crazy maniacs on Twitter but who are normal in real life. So it could be that by bringing this up, I'm sort of letting Twitter – well, not letting Twitter off the hook but just ignoring the fact that people have these like bifurcated personalities where they're totally different online, which is an important thing to realize. Right. Do you think that your Twitter persona reflects who you actually are? In my case, I don't think it's that far off because like I'm snarky and will sometimes make fun of people but I – I don't think I try to like unfairly shame people or denigrate people. I do think there's like, I'm pretty nice on there. Although I, I think people could point to exceptions. So I think my personalities are pretty much aligned, but like my, my worst moments are tw on Twitter are when I do something because of like group pressure or just like heat of the moment where I'm like, if I did that in real life, I would consider myself such a douchebag. Right. I feel like your, I feel like your Twitter personality is a little bit more like, in your face than you are in real life? Do you think that's fair? I think that I'm an asshole in real life and on Twitter. I think that's what it, I think that's like ultimately what it comes down to is that I'm like not that nice a person and that Twitter, uh, <laughs> Twitter is an extension of that. I do struggle. Okay. Can we talk about Noah Berlaski for a second before we get into the meat of the show? Of course. Okay. So Noah Berlaski, for people who don't know, is the worst pundit in America, I would say. Do you think that's fair? I'm always so conflicted on this because he so desperately wants attention and he views getting dragged by everybody from across the political spectrum as proof that he's right. But right. of the people who regularly get published, yeah, he's like his inability to sort of process a sentence and respond fairly or even comprehend what someone else's sentence says rather than just butcher it. I've never really seen anything like it. He just like an example of the kind of thing that Noah writes. Uh, let me find this one particular story. OK, this is from uh, 2015 in The New Republic. The piece is called Kermit has a new girlfriend. Good. His last one was a domestic abuser. <laughs> Miss Piggy regularly beat him up and everyone thought it was funny. Not anymore. And that could be like a, a very funny, like satirical piece about something, but it's not. Um, so that's the kind of thing that Noah writes. He also has written a series of ebooks that have chapters on his least favorite pundits. I think one of them has like three chapters about you. Um, anyway, so Noah was in, Noah got like horribly dragged this week because he had an idiotic tweet and the, and the tweet was something like, Parents are tyrant. Parent is an oppressive class, like rich people or white people. And of course, this got quote tweeted to death because it's an idiotic thing to say and he wasn't kidding and i was one of the people who 
you know, I took a screenshot because Noah blocked me and I posted it and I said something like, never forget, Noah Berlatsky is 50, which is the most interesting thing about him. Like, it's incredibly predictable that he went to Oberlin. What is less predictable is that he went to Oberlin in the 1980s. Um, he just, he, he acts like a child and he seems like a child. And so the fact that this is like a 50 year old man is shocking. Anyway, so I was making fun of Noah, and then I read this piece by Greg Lukianoff, who was Jonathan Haidt's co-author in The Coddling of the American Mind, and the piece was about a friend of his named Mike Adams, who was a teacher, a professor at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington, and Mike was conservative, and he was like constantly getting reprimanded, constantly being canceled. His students try to get him fired all the time because he said really like offensive shit online, primarily online. He, he, he reveled, he reveled in, in it. it to yeah. Be like, yeah, yeah. Not that that justifies anything yeah, that happened. Yeah. Yeah. And so Mike um, was, was forced to take early retirement or he took early retirement this year and he won a, like a $500,000, not settlement, but he, the university was basically going to pay him to go away because they've been, a, he's been a pain in their ass for the last 20 years or however long. And, and, and Greg, who's the, I guess he's the exact, I don't know what his title is, but he's with, with FIRE, the Freedom of Information of, what, what's FIRE stand for? Foundation for, Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Okay. Got it. So it's, it's a free speech group that focuses primarily on, on university campuses. And so uh, Greg knew Mike because he had been he they had supported him um, when he had been, you know, his rights were like being trampled on by the university when they were trying to get him to shut up over the years. And um, so Mike was, you know, forced out of the out of the college. He took this half million dollar settlement. And then really soon after that, he killed himself. And. This was, you know, I think really shocking for people who knew Mike because he had this persona, this sort of, you know, in your face, fuck you, I'll say what I want persona. But it turns out that it, you know, it appears he was like very depressed and, and harboring, you know, some emotional issues. And after, and so Greg wrote this great piece about sort of reflecting on his friend's life and also about how, um, about how how online culture, how cancel culture can have these real these real effects, um, and how being feeling like you're a villain, feeling like everybody hates you, can can kill people. Um, and I read that, and I had like been like spent like three days like making fun of Noah, who totally deserves it. And I just felt like I I gotta be better. I totally gotta be better about this. And that lasted for like ten minutes before. <laughs> before i don't remember who it was before somebody said something idiotic and i just like could not stop myself from responding to it you know and then i spent like two days like the next two days getting in fights with assholes over you um because we'll get into this but you got into this like this like thing on twitter with this author and then people were calling you transphobic and i did the thing where you i say like okay well what what position what problems do you have with jesse's positions i'm sure if you if you lay out your issues he'll like respond to you that he'll he'll have a conversation with you and none of these people could could say what was so transphobic about what you believe because none of them have read your work and i spent like two days in this like dumb fight with people who don't matter i'm never gonna meet whatever it doesn't really matter what they think about you so my point here is just that it's really hard to like, you can set these principles. I can say like, I'm going to be better online. I'm not going to be an asshole online. I'm not going to attack people. I'm not going to quote tweet people. And then like five minutes later, it feels like my brain has been hijacked. Um, so I've decided I have like a new system for myself because I have to be, I don't want to be unrealistic and and like it is unrealistic for me to say that i'm never gonna make fun of people on twitter so instead what my new rule is that i will only act in defense i'm gonna be like the the like is it judo is judo the one where you only fight in defense i'm gonna be like the i'm gonna be like the dojo master who only on twitter i only respond i don't provoke so if somebody is coming for me or coming for my co-host I will respond, but I will not. I am going to try really hard not to instigate. There's a uh, there's a, a slight whiff of Vladimir Putin here. Like we're in, we're invading Eastern Ukraine to defend the helpless uh, Russian speaking minority there because the Ukrainians won't. I'm just defending the helpless Jesse Single. This is going to you're going to quickly develop like try to chase the dragon again and develop a taste for online fights and just like endlessly name search my name and then jump into threads and just viciously <laughs> kill yourself 
I'm going to have a Google alert set up for your name so that anytime I need to get my aggression out, I can just wait until someone is, you know, is calling you transphobic and I'll respond and I'd say, he's not, he's not transphobic. He dates horses, but he's not transphobic. Get it right, people. I just, that's the thing. I want people to, I, if like people are going to criticize you, that's totally fine. But I just want it to be for things that you've actually done, you know, like have sex with horses. Mm -hmm. Well, the cargo shorts is a real one. And that is like justified in the diet. Like the horse one. I've revealed aspects of my personality, including my diet that are very much worthy of ridicule. So I wish people would focus on those. Right. That's the funny thing is like, there's just so much to work with. And instead they're making up these like cartoon boogeyman versions of who you are. Yeah. Pathetic, really. I mean, it's, it's very like with someone like Berlatsky where every twice a year I get sucked back into like being baited by him and he's done some fucked up shit. Like he literally, he did a whole uh, Patreon page on his Patreon called like the Jesse single resources page where he he i'm not i'm not making this up he took every negative thing that he could find about me and compiled them and put them in what any negative thing anyone else has said and compiled them and put them on one page stating that they're true right and because i'm a reviled figure among a subset of like online lefties people make shit up i've been clear about this berlatsky who go who acts he's a professional journalist or he claims he is well, I think professionally he does like HR compliance stuff, but he's a writer on the side who gets paid for it. Really? He does HR compliance as a job? He's, he said that once, which is like perfect because he's a cop. Fre- Freddie DeBoer once called him a cop. He is a cop. Um, yes. But like imagine if I took a controversial figure and just Googled and found every bad thing anyone had said about them and just compiled them in a document and treated everything as true without checking at all. That's like – Right. That's really fucked up and that's why it's very hard to resist – you know that that was a particularly ridiculous example, but he just he he makes shit up of people about people. He lie he, I don't think he lies about what they wrote. I think he's not. This is gonna sound mean, but like when you see the way he will misunderstand basic arguments, I'm not sure he. I think it's like almost a, a reading comprehension issue. Is there any way to say that that doesn't sound mean? Uh, I mean, it's uh, either he's dishonest or he's stupid. I mean, like like you'll you'll say you'll I'll say, uh, some dogs are dangerous to humans and then he'll this is like the kind of thing he'll do he'll respond wow jesse single says that all dogs should be rounded up and put to death in a dog holocaust that's like the kind of jump he will regularly make um and it's just so hard not to rise to the bait at one point i this was a while ago but he said something about so he has a child and he said something about how his child and all of the child like the teenager and all of the teenager's friends like a topic of conversation for them is your two-year-old Atlantic piece, and they and they are like constantly talking about how it's made made pediatric transition more difficult. Well, I think they talked about how uh, when kids are subjected to transphobic bullying in Chicago, yeah, that bullying is justified on the basis of my twelve thousand word right. sort of investigative piece into into juvenile transition because that's that's how. 12-year-olds on the playground bully one another. They cite Atlantic faces. Like, oh, did, did you see that Atlantic – did you see that Atlantic piece that says sometimes kids shouldn't immediately transition? <laughs> Queer. They immediately start, like, citing Blanchard and Ken Zucker and, and using uh, and using using studies from, from Canada to torture each other. We just fucking donated, like, five minutes of our podcast to Noah Berlatsky. We lost. He won again. He's like, he's like, oh, God, he's, maybe he's an evil genius. It's possible. Why don't we do an ad break just to uh, get our composure back, and then we'll jump into the second half. All right. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Jesse, something you may not know about me is that my front two teeth are made out of chiclets. What? How did that happen? Glad you asked. What happened was, on the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated as president, I celebrated all day with my friends at the White House. And when I was leaving the inaugural ball, I slipped on my gown on my way to my limo. I knew I needed to spare my hands because I'm a famous blogger and my fingertips are my tools. So instead of catching my fall, I landed smack on my face, breaking my two front teeth and getting a scab on my upper lip that looked just like a Hitler mustache. Katie, that sounds like a true story and that like it hurt a lot. It did, and that's when I coined the phrase, thanks, Obama. So you you never got your teeth fixed? In this economy? No way. I just super glue white chiclets to my gums anytime I leave the house. But the thing I learned about this unfortunate event was that if you love your teeth, you need to take care of them. Which is a great reason to use Quip's new refillable floss pick. 
if you want your teeth to continue to be made out of teeth. It's easy to use, it looks great in your medicine cabinet, and it makes flossing your existing teeth easier than ever. This holiday season, check out Quip's exclusive deals. If you go to getquip.com slash barpod right now, you'll get your first refill free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash barpod. That's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash barpod. Quip, better oral health, made simple. Okay, so uh, Katie, youth gender dysphoria, straightforward subject, right? No controversy. Oh, no controversy. Very simple. Okay, this is this is slightly complicated, but it's very important. Um, a few weeks ago, a British High Court handed down a ruling that was part of what they call over there a judicial review. This isn't really like one person suing another. It's sort of uh, people claimants, as they call them, challenging government policy. So in this case, the, the thing they were challenging was um, giving puberty blockers to minors within the National Health Service. So the, the, the question the court took up was whether minors can meaningfully consent to this treatment. And one of the two claimants was a woman named Kira Bell. She's a detransitioner in her 20s who got blockers and hormones and surgery through the National Health Service. And she now regrets it. Uh, the other claimant is a mom who is afraid that her daughter... Um, who has mental health issues would be referred to blockers. The the judges are sort of like, we don't get why this woman is like involved because her daughter wasn't reserved, so they sort of brush her aside. Kira Bell is the famous claimant. She's sort of a cause celeb among people who are uh, skeptical of youth transition. Okay, so the case centers around the Gender Identity Development Service, GIDS. That's the youth gender clinic operating under the NHS, uh, and youth gender stuff in general is under the purview of something called the Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation Trust. A lot of names. I'm bringing that up because you'll hear us mention Tavistock, and you'll see Tavistock mentioned in the news. That's the Tavistock Trust, which sort of operates mental health stuff for the NHS, including youth gender dysphoria. With me so far? Yes. Okay, so so there's some debate over the best way to help uh, kids and teenagers with gender dysphoria. And in recent years, there's been this steady drip, drip, drip of reporting out of the Tavistock Clinic, which suggests that some clinicians there think kids are sort of being rushed into physical treatment like puberty blockers and hormones, perhaps without enough sort of like psychological counseling first. I'll just give you a few headlines. NHS Child Gender Clinic colon staff concerns, quote, shut down, as in staff tried to raise issues they were shut down. 2019 in the BBC, Governor of Tavistock Foundation quits over damning report into Gender Identity Clinic. Times of London, 2019, calls to end transgender, quote, experiment on children. Um, also sort of covering staff upheaval there. So those staff issues were sort of beyond what the court was looking at, but they're important because like people have suggested this, these youth gender clinics are a mess for a while. Um, and, but the only thing the court looked at was that question of whether kids meet this threshold called Gillick competence, which is how the Brits refer to whether a child can meaningfully consent to a medical procedure. Cause obviously that's different than adults. Cause kids brains aren't developed yet. They're not as smart, blah, blah, blah. They're stupid. Kids, all kids are stupid. Katie thinks Katie thinks that trans kids are especially stupid. I think they're just as smart as everyone else, just to be clear about that. No, Jesse, I did not say that. That was Hesse. No, that you said Hesse. it off. I did not say it. I did not <laughs> say it. You said that off, Mike, and you asked me that. I did not say that. I either. never said that. I, all kids are equally stupid. All kids are equally stupid. It's a beautiful egalitarian ideal. Um, okay. So the court ruled, this was a big deal, came out just a few weeks ago, that for under 16s, for kids under 16, it's going to be very difficult for them to be able to understand the potential costs and benefits of puberty blockers and meaningfully consent to them. They basically set up this sliding scale where they said, we think 13-year-olds can basically never do that. 14s and 15s, it's like still a challenge, but they might be able to. 16 is really the age at which, um, and here they're drawing on other aspects of British law, 16 is like really when you can meaningfully consent to puberty blockers. Or like marriage or sex. Right, for example. Yeah. Buying, um, an, buying an alcohol or whatever. Prescribe, subscribing to a podcast, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So 
people were watching this case very closely because this was an opportunity for this gender identity clinic that does give blockers to a fair number of kids under 16 to provide the evidence for puberty blockers, that they're a good way to help kids with gender dysphoria. And the, and the clinic itself is called Tavistock. Yeah, or the gen- right, see, Gender Identity Service, which is sort of operated by Tavistock, uh, so it's often called the Tavistock Clinic. I'm sure I'm getting a little things wrong with all these names, but that's the basic structure. Um, as anyone who's like looked deeply into the literature could tell you, there is actually not a lot of good evidence on puberty blockers and gender dysphoric kids. There is some evidence, mostly from one clinic, this Dutch clinic. But it's unclear to what extent like that evidence can be applied to other situations just because they have a very particular conservative approach where they discourage child transition. They basically say like don't socially transition until around the time you start taking puberty blockers because that gives us a chance to know if your gender dysphoria is going to stick around in the long term, which it often doesn't. That's a point trans activists often say is false, that gender dysphoria goes away on its own with time. It absolutely does. There's fairly overwhelming evidence on this. I'll link to these long, boring rundowns I've done. But it's just like, as soon as you mention this, someone will say, no, that's false. Gender dysphoria doesn't often go away on its own. We don't know how often, pretty often. I think that I would be an example of someone who, had I been, had I lived a little bit later in life, I think I probably would be the type of kid who was diagnosed with dysphoria. Did you, was it, so was your discomfort like with gender roles or did you actually have like body dysphoria? Well, gender roles until puberty. And then during puberty, I became very uncomfortable with, with my physical body. You know, and you know, I was a tomboy. Um, I looked like a boy my entire life, like young life. I looked like a boy. Um, I, you know, I was the only girl in little league. I was constantly, constantly mistaken for a boy. You know, and I think there that's one of the questions there is in a situation like mine, would I have been, you know, was this was this gender dysphoria or was this a bristling against like these intractable gender roles or what we're seen as what are often seen as these intractable gender roles? Um, and I'm not sure. I think that, it, you know, I think that if I had gone to a, to any sort of gender identity clinic today, I think probably what they would have said is, yeah, you like you qualify under these guidelines, you qualify a, um, as gender dysphoric, in part because I was the little kid who always presented as the uh, as the opposite sex. You're a real tomboy. I was a real tomboy. And if people and, it, you know, it's it was always it was embarrassing if people like called me like young man or hate or like sir or whatever in front of other people because then like my parents would correct them and it was just it was just sort of humiliating but if somebody misgendered me when I was alone I would go with it and I I used to tell people if this happened and somebody asked me like if I was by myself like what's your name young man I would say that my name was Kyle interesting okay so yeah I mean that's an example of like and we've heard other people explain how especially around puberty if if you're feeling all the normal distress and anxiety and oftentimes hate, hatred of your own body that I think females in particular experience. And then an authority figure comes along and says, this could be a sign that on the inside you're a boy and that you're not going to be happy unless you transition. It's seen as offensive in some quarters to suggest kids could be swayed by that. But if you go online, you'll see that everywhere. There's people who say it's happened to them. I'm not saying it's like the most common thing in the world, but that's why a kid should have some degree of therapy and exploration before going on puberty blockers. Right. If somebody had come to me or if I had gotten online and somebody's and I learned from YouTube videos or Tumblr or Twitter or whatever that I could opt out of this thing that was making me so uncomfortable, I would have done it. Yeah. Yeah. And this is like it's just the divide between normal people and like two online madness is crazy here because this is such a basic point about developmental adolescent psychology that kids are like very groupish and like easily suggestible it's just it should not be a controversial thing to raise what i do think people should be careful about is like pretending we know how often this happens it just clearly does happen okay so what is the what are what are the like the commonly cited figures here it there's like i i'm so so for a long time they gave the number 80 percent. one of the things i agree with the activists on is like the way the studies were structured 80% 80% is probably an overestimate if you use DSM-5 criteria for youth gender dysphoria, which are a little bit tighter than DSM-4. And I'll, I'll include show notes for people who want to dive into the nerdy weeds on this. But what the activists do is they pretend that these old studies 
were worthless at diagnosing uh, genuine gender dysphoria and that therefore we can't take anything from them. That's completely false because you can look at the methodology. It's right there in the study and, and note that they, they were diagnosing something very similar to what we now understand as gender dysphoria. I would say it all that matters is it's not very low and it's not very high. That's what a clinician once told me. Like I, I would not be outraged if someone said that an individual kid who's four or five with gender dysphoria has like, I don't know, 50, 60% chance of desisting. The longer you have it, the less likely it is to desist, they think. Also, this new thing where 13 and 14-year-olds suddenly show up at gender clinics, usually girls, um, having seemingly suddenly developed gender dysphoria, the sort of rapid onset model that, again, activists will tell you it's a total myth. You can't say that. It, it absolutely happens. And that is new. And those are overwhelmingly females, which, again, is another reason to just want the process to be careful, to make sure people who go on blockers and hormones should. Um, so, right. So, okay. So this ruling comes down. And... Uh, the NHS gender clinic immediately changes its policy so that it, it will not give refer kids under 16 for blockers. My read of the case is like the, the judges did not say you have to do that. I think the NHS is being a little bit conservative here. I'm against a blanket ban on blockers for younger kids because I think some kids who are really dysphoric need to be given access to them. But um, okay, so that's where we're at now. NHS, I think you can still access private clinics in the UK or, or in England. Um. Don't quote me on that. I need to check. But but National Health Service no longer prescribes puberty blockers to kids under sixteen. I think that's too conservative. That's the policy. Here here let me let's let me straw man that for a second. Or let me steal man. No, straw man it. <laughs> let me straw let me steel man that for a second. If we talk for a second about the repercussions of hormone blockers. Puberty puberty blockers. Oh, I'm sorry, puberty blockers. So what they do is obviously like they postpone your natal sex puberty and then after you can delay that for a while and then you can start taking hrt uh, hormone replacement therapy that will give you sort of opposite sex puberty i guess that's the simplest way to put it yeah. however if you are a natal male who takes puberty blockers from a young age uh the likelihood that for instance your penis will grow large enough to uh to have a viable um a viable vaginoplasty goes down. And so the, so the case of Jazz Jennings, who is this famous, uh, I guess she's probably in her twenties now, early twenties, maybe late teens. She was on this TV show called I am jazz. She wrote a children's book. She's a trans girl. Jazz went through blockers. And then one of the plot lines on her reality TV show was about her getting gender reassignment surgery. She was going to have bottom surgery. And there were all of these complications because her penile tissue hadn't developed, hadn't developed to the point where they had enough tissue to like construct a functioning vagina. And so there was all these like horrific, horrific medical complications. So that's one problem with blockers, um, that it could actually make later transition in these particular ways more difficult obviously there there are like if you're a if you're a trans person there can be like very good reasons for you to want to take these blockers because in some ways they make transitioning much easier and there's also evidence that these can have permanent effects on sexual function and reproductive uh, and your you know your ability to reproduce later on well well so we we basically know that if you go on blockers early and then cross sex hormones you won't be able to have kids we my my understanding is as as to sexual function and what's so fucking disingenuous about this is people will say, oh, my God, why are you talking about, like, kids and sex, perverts? Why are you obsessed with, like – literally someone tweeted me yesterday. Why are you obsessed with kids' genitals? Like, well, I'm the one I'm the one who whose default is that people should go through puberty because that's the national process. Pro, you're the one saying we should delay it and have them go through the other puberty. End of the day, no one really knows uh, what sort of sexual function you will have when you're at the end of this process. There's a lot of uncertainty there. If If it's – if talking about a child's future sexual function isn't important, then why do we give a shit about fe about female genital mutilation? Right. I mean, it's it's such a bad faith thing, but um, right. Right. So so the whole thing here is, you're 12 and 13. You likely have little to no sexual experience. This is like the kind of thing the core is asking. To what extent can you fast forward in your little brain that's still developing and say? I won't mind that I'll be 20 or 25. I won't be able to have kids. I won't necessarily be able to have the sex life my peers are having. Now, and, and, the, like, I think let's like be a little bit more explicit about it. You might never be able to have an orgasm. Yeah. 
which is something that you you haven't had yet, so you can't really yeah you know can't what comprehend that what that means. Right now, I do think people often leave off the other side of the ledger, which is if you're at ten or twelve and you're in terrible pain and you've been had really bad gender dysphoria for a while, and you are dreading the idea of growing an Adam's apple and facial hair. That might be a trade-off worth making in the long run. Everyone is different with regard to sex and with regard to these very personal trade-offs. So I do think there's a tendency to like just say, oh, well, you know, their their sexual function will be just hampered forever. So it's bad. It's like for some people, the alternative is going to be a huge amount of despair and anguish. And in some cases, I don't want to overstate this, which people tend to do, but in some cases, literal suicidality. So there's a real trade-off here no matter how you slice it. Right, right. Okay, so that's where we're at. Now, Now, the thing I want to focus on is I've – in my newsletter in particular, I'll include some links. Um, coverage of these issues in the United States is so fucking bad. If It's just horrible. If you talk to clinicians, if you talk to endocrinologists – or responsible ones at least, they will all tell you these are complicated discussions. I think if you've listened to the last five minutes of us talking about this as a listener, you should understand it's complicated. You have to weigh pros and cons. You have to understand there's some uncertainty. You have to realize kids are kids. Um, Foreign Policy published a really, really horribly dishonest and irresponsible article Written by close personal friend of the podcast and of both of us, Grace Lavery. Very close. Grace Lavery is sort of a – she's a professor of English at UC Berkeley. She's very much an online flamethrower. She likes getting in fights. People are going to be pissed off when I say this. She has zero, zero, zero qualifications to write about this issue. There is no – She's a trans woman. That's her, her – she's an adult trans woman who transitioned as an adult. And not that long ago, sometime in the last few years. It is the approximate equivalent of foreign policy reaching out to me and saying, you're Jewish. Why don't you write about the two-state solution, which I'm not qualified to write about. Right. So this piece is headlined, a high court decision in Britain puts trans people everywhere at risk. Before I sort of explain some of the problems with it, I should point out, I think Grace and I actually agree that at least the way this is being interpreted is too conservative. I do not like the idea of like really gender dysphoric kids who are 10 having to wait six years for any sort of physical medical care. That that really makes me uncomfortable for like well-diagnosed kids who like have serious dysphoria. I don't think that's a good solution. I hope they can address that. But Grace did not read this court ruling. She did not read it, and she fucked up so many basic things that you could only fuck up if you didn't read it. The initial first sentence of this article in Foreign Policy said that the court had ruled that no kids under 16 can consent to puberty blockers. No kids. The ruling does not say that. It says that 13 and 14 and 15-year-olds need to be looked at in different ways, and that the court is skeptical that they can consent, but that some of them can. Like, and that depends on the developmental level. Foreign Policy published a story on a major issue of of societal concern with a big error in the first sentence, and they quietly changed it. They They didn't acknowledge the error. They didn't tell readers, you know, what you should tell them, which is in effect our our author didn't read this close enough to even understand what the judges called for. That's like, that's inexcusable. I mean, Katie, I know, I'm sure this stranger, like New York Magazine, stealth edits some things. Like, if you get a little thing wrong, you'll, like, change it right when it goes up. But, like, don't you have to acknowledge major errors like that? Yeah. I mean, it's just, we like, we fucked up in our last podcast. We are acknowledging the errors. Um, this is, this is just, it's essential for keeping your readers trust. Um, you know, it's just like everybody makes errors. It is incredibly common. I am sure both of us have made hugely embarrassing errors. Well, I'm sure that you have made hugely embarrassing errors in the past, but if you don't acknowledge it, it looks really fucking bad. Yeah. And, and this piece is just, so the whole, whole point of this piece is she sort of goes on this rant about how this court ruling was the work of gender critical feminists and TERFs and basically like everyone she, Grace Lavery, dislikes. In fact, the ruling had almost nothing to do with these groups. It's just sort of conspiracy theorizing. But she describes the case as a, quote, unprecedented juridical attack on the LGBT community in the UK. And she says it was motivated by, quote, eliminationist beliefs on the part of the judges. Elimination. She's saying these judges want to eliminate, which I guess means kill or drive from society trans people. That's a ridiculously 
terrible thing to say, like without any, like, it's such a crazy allegation to appear in foreign policy, which is a, a, was a respected publication. How the fuck does this happen? I mean, it's just, it's like one of these platitudes that activists repeat that have, like, it's totally meaningless. Nobody is, like, denying your existence. Nobody wants trans people exterminated. This is just, and if it, and if, if these people exist, they are probably, like, fringe fucking fundamentalists, not, you know, fucking 50 year old gender critical lesbians in the UK. This is just, it's, it is, she has created. A, just a boogeyman um you know out of these out of like these judges even like not just for for gender critical feminists but also out of these judges um there's other things she fucked up that like show she didn't read it so the the court goes to some length to explain how the gender clinic didn't have full data on what percentage of kids who go on blockers proceeds to hormones which is an important stat for multiple reasons Lavery says the court didn't collect any evidence on that question. Any evidence. Which is just, it's a lie. It's made up. Like, or I, I shouldn't say that. Maybe she didn't read, she either didn't read it or it's a lie. You cannot read this ruling and then come away saying the court didn't collect evidence on this because the court did collect some evidence. Um, I, I think, um, what pisses me off the most is a, a big, a small but important section of the ruling goes to the question of whether puberty blockers are reversible. This is absolutely fucking crucial. If you're if you're a kid or if you're a parent of a kid debating puberty blockers, whether or not they're fully reversible matters a great deal. Lavery completely ignores the fact that the judges looked at that and and were skeptical of it. There's some evidence that puberty blockers, in this case where you then go on to cross-sex hormones, should not be seen as reversible. They might have permanent physical effects. They might have permanent psychological effects. Instead, she just says, we've been using them for pre precocious puberty for a while, and they're reversible. Yeah, so it's just like, so the, the judges clearly lay out why we shouldn't say that because puberty blockers are used for precocious puberty and are considered generally reversible in that case we should consider them reversible in this case it's very different because if you're going on cross-sex hormones you're not having your natal puberty you're having a different kind of puberty it's not like you just pause something and then reset it you pause and then go on something else leverage just ignores all that like a reader of foreign policy will be seriously misled about the quality and nature of the evidence the court provides whether or not you agree with it and and you know i spent like hours writing this sort of in-depth newsletter post responding to this because this shit drives me crazy like people reading foreign policy or any magazine deserve to have good honest information on this foreign policy would not allow an article this low quality with this many errors to appear if the subject was basically anything other than like a hot button culture war issue and i just think it's really irresponsible and i i have i do not think foreign policy is going to correct any of these errors it's just going to let someone spout bullshit based on something they didn't read and that's not good journalism yeah so there are negative health effects to puberty blockers and we know this because puberty blockers have been used for a long time not just in terms of trans kids but also in terms of precocious puberty which is when you start puberty too young um so here's an article from 2017 in pbs NewsHour. the headline is women fear a drug they used to halt puberty led to health problems and it's about how uh how there's these women who are having like okay deteriorated jaw joint uh degenerative disc disease fibromyalgia chronic pain her teeth are shedding enamel and cracking um and they think this is a repercussion of taking lupron which is a drug that's commonly used prominently pr commonly uh prescribed for trans kids um to block puberty so if anything i i i'm understating it when i say that like so even in the normal case where it's just for precocious puberty, there's some potential risks. And, and we know even less about using it and then going on to cross-sex hormones. So there's just uh, – it, it's incredibly irresponsible for foreign policy to do this. I don't understand why Lavery is seen um, as qualified. It's like exactly what you thought would have happened based on her sort of online persona and the contempt she holds for people who have any questions about this. She's done like sort of these cruel, jokey memes about – anyone who cares about kids health as though it's this was predictable and I, i'm pissed off foreign policy published this but it's just like this is this is where the standards are now on this so i am wild guess here gonna assume that you had some words with lavery about this some exchanges on twitter how did that go i mean it never goes well with her because her whole thing is everyone is a fucking idiot and an asshole she's one of the most sort of toxic and aggressive people I've come across. The, the the little bit of history here is like a year ish ago. I emailed her because there's this um 
it's like letters.wiki or something. It's a site where people who think they have disagreement can just sort of publicly write letters back and forth and respond. And I foolishly emailed her. I was like, do you want to maybe do this? It might be interesting to, you know, talk through whatever our disagreements are. And she then posted my email to her online to sort of make fun of, I mean, all she sort of does is ridicule. Um, and she really, she seems to really hate me. Uh, it's not, it's not mutual. I'm frustrated by the quality of her work. I don't, it's just hard because when there's like vitriolic hatred flowing in one direction, like you don't really, uh, want to interact with someone like that. Um, but yeah, it did not go well when I pointed out, uh, the issue. She basically denied that she got this basic thing wrong and in, in what I thought was a bullshit way. Mostly I don't understand why foreign policy is asking Grace Laverly to, to weigh in on this. It's it's crazy. And and just to be clear, I would not have devoted a minute to this if this was like Grace Lavery writing a dumb substack post about gender. Like who the fuck cares? This is foreign policy for some reason, A deciding to wade into a gender thing that's like, okay, technically it is a foreign policy, but foreign policy is more about like foreign policy in the geopolitical sense. And B, choosing Grace Lavery, and C, trying to cover up her first sentence fuck up that should immediately call her credibility into question. Like, it's it's just horribly shoddy journalism, and you just shouldn't trust a magazine that does that. Um, this whole thing was just so fucking demoralizing. Journalists are often put in this strange position where we have to quickly, very quickly become quasi-experts or try to become quasi-experts on something that we don't know that much about. And yeah. so your way of dealing with that is to talk to actual experts, you know, to get voices from across the spectrum, to lean on people who know what they're talking about. And Lavery doesn't appear to have done this at all. She didn't talk to any legal experts. She didn't talk to any clinicians. This is just seems to be her interpretation. Of she didn't read the one thing you have to read right. to even be able to comment on this at all. Right, right. right. No, and she just defaulted to her own ever lengthening enemies list of turfs and gender critical feminists as though these these judges when they're trying to carefully weigh the pros and cons of 13 year olds on puberty blockers are like you know reading turfs to try to figure i mean it it's a, a fantasy world they're like going to megan murphy's website sure <laughs> feminist current says that trans women are men therefore kids shouldn't go on it's it's unhinged man and like if you put a little bit of time into understanding an issue which i think i have whatever mistakes i've made like to then see someone just like hand the mic to someone who's so wrong and full of sh it's just well and she i dude, mean people are gonna be so misinformed by this article so wrong and so proud of being wrong not only is she unqualified to write the piece she's an activist and i don't think that you should have activists writing these pieces in the first place unless they are clearly like like marked at the top of the headline this is written by an activist someone with a fucking bone to pick you know like this person has an agenda grace also like transitioned as an adult so it's not like we're talking about someone who even has any personal experience any lived experience with pediatric transition kathleen stock a gender critical feminist got in trouble for pointing this out but that's an uncomfortable truth of this you you are someone who transitioned as an adult and who was never in a position where you could get pregnant or have to worry about not being able to get pregnant for you to make glib jokey statements about 12 year old girls making this decision that will render them infertile if they go all the way that you demonstrate that you don't care about this or you think anyone who cares about it is is an asshole in the article she actually says that the fact that the court mentioned fertility so much is a sign that it's a socially conservative project because who else other than some socially conservative asshole could care about a fucking 12 year old's future fertility you know i do think it's really weird that you know it's it's really difficult for adult women to get to get their tubes tied before before like their mid-30s like most doctors won't do it because women oftentimes change their mind about whether or not they want to have children um, it can be like you can get an iud but to have like more permanent um you know biological interventions is actually really difficult however if you are a child and you say that you are trans it's fine like you can do these you can do this thing that will render you infertile but if you're an adult woman who wants to make this decision for yourself it's going to be really fucking hard to find a doctor willing to to like tie your tubes before you're in your 30s 
Greece is also one of these people who, as we've talked about before, will say something hugely inflammatory. And then when people get pissed about it, um, you know, act like a victim. Oh, she included that in the foreign policy thing when she publicly said that Abigail Schreier's book should be stolen and burned. And then a bunch of people started harassing her, which, of course, they're going to because that's what happens. It's not good, but that's what happens on Twitter. If I publicly said a book by a trans writer should be burned. I'd get days of, of yeah. threats and bullshit. But yeah, then it, but she's always a victim because it, it's a personality type where like – and we're going to talk about someone else like this in the patrons only episode. Nothing you do ever has any connection to what the world sends back at you. There could never be any like sense in which maybe you shouldn't be such a prick all the time if you don't want people to be an asshole to you on Twitter. And I think that we should we should affirm Grace's gender – a cunt. If you're going to be a cunt, not a prick, a cunt. Essay, edit that out, please. <laughs> okay, Jesse, have we talked about this enough? Dude, it was so bad. I'll inc- if people are like interested in the nitty gritty specifics, I'll include a link to a free newsletter I did this that is unfortunately thousands of words long, but like, do not like mainstream coverage of this issue in the States is a fucking dumpster fire. And I do not know what to tell people who want good, relatively like unbiased information on this it's really really bad and i feel bad for parents and for kids trying to make these important medical decisions because you have basically no one to turn to on either side who isn't full of shit i can think of i can think of one person i was gonna say this goes back to the cult thing where we are slowly cutting our listeners off from all other sources of media we're the only trustworthy sources come with us we have a compound and we have fruit punch that has a special ingredient and we make sure that all of our transgender kids are really well diagnosed before we give them blockers exactly yeah, we're running an unlicensed medical clinic that <laughs> offers that and will to- tie your tubes and other various services. Yeah, you don't have to wait till you're 36 to get your tubes tied. We'll do it now. We'll do it for toddlers. That's fine. Uh, so, bad time to bring this up. But as always, if you have feedback, uh, such as on Katie's misogynistic language, we're at blocked and reported podcast at gmail.com. Please continue rating us. Apple Podcasts. We already mentioned the Patreon uh reddit we're at reddit.com slash r slash blocked reported katie anything else we have a merch store uh at barpod.org you can get hoodies you can get tote bags you can get mugs lots of good puberty blockers you can can get lupron you can get off-label off-label drugs the 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 sweatshirt is actually just a vial of lupron we for legal reasons yeah so just be careful it's a code word a sweatshirt deep quotes This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, children under 16 cannot consent to listening to podcasts. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, if foreign policy would like to hire me as an expert in cryptocurrency, American football, or an array of topics I know nothing about, I'm available.